Hello, my name is Edward Collins and you are listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a new podcast series brought to you by UCD's HistoryHub.ie and the School of History. Today we're speaking with Professor Ricardo Padron. Professor Padron is an Associate Professor of Spanish at the University of Virginia. He's a native of Ecuador and raised in the United States with a lifelong interest in maps and mapping. His first book, The Spacious Word, Cartography, Literature and Empire in Early Modern Spain, was published by the University of Chicago Press. And our interview today is about his upcoming work, Reorienting the Indies, Spain, the Pacific and Asia, 1513 to 1609, which he assures me is almost finished. Professor Padron, Ricardo, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Edward. Nice to be here. So, uh, Ricardo, in your upcoming work, Reorienting the Indies, um, you trace the invention of the Pacific Rim by the Spanish imperial imagination during the long 16th century. You note that this is not a history of, of Pacific exploration, however, or commerce or colonization, but rather an account of how the Pacific Rim was conceptualized and represented by the historiography, the cartography and the travel narrative that emerged from Spain's encounter with the Pacific and the Asia-Pacific region between 1513 and the beginning of the 17th century, dates which we will come to uh, a little bit later. But I'm very intrigued by this theme, and particularly by the idea that you're going to deal with how the Pacific was invented as a concept. Now, do you mean it in the same way that Edmundo Gorman explained the invention of America, that is to say, an entity that existed only when it was first discovered by European eyes? It's precisely. That's, uh, that's where I'm getting the idea. Uh, what O'Gorman teaches us is that we ordinarily think of geographical entities like continents and oceans as something that, that's naturally occurring, that we just have to sort of stumble across, that we discover. Um, and what he teaches us is that something like America or Europe is just as much a concept as it is a uh, physical reality. Uh, and uh, you know, the continents and the oceans can be conceptualized in different ways. Um, so to give a very simple example, when speakers of English look at a map of the world, they see two continents in the Western Hemisphere, North and South America. When speakers of Spanish uh, uh, look at a map of the world, they see only one continent, America. Mm, uh, Spanish uh, culture doesn't tend to distinguish between the two. Um, and I think this is the sort of thing that Edmundo Gordon is driving at, that there's a lot of culture in our uh, ideas about what we think of as purely natural entities. And, and the Pacific, like any ocean, um, is one such entity, just as much a product of how we think about it as of any uh, physical reality. Okay, very good. Very interesting. So um, to, to let's begin with the New World, of course, and the Spanish discoveries, though. Um, let's talk about their primary objective that ultimately led to the discovery of the New World or America. Because discovering a new continent, quote, a quote-unquote new continent, was not the objective of Columbus or his Spanish sponsors, was it? No, no, not at all. Um, as far as we know, no one really had any idea that a new continent or anything of the sort was, was out there to be found. Um, there was some speculation, of course, but uh, uh, Columbus's expectation was that he was going to reach the East, the Indies. Um, in other words, the what we would call East and Southeast Asia. Uh, by way of the West. So the controversy was not whether there was a new world out there. The, the controversy was whether or not the ocean was small enough, the, the ocean between Europe and Asia was small enough to actually be crossed by the technology of the time. We know that Columbus referred to his discoveries as the Indies of, uh, and not as a new world until his death, uh, which probably, among other factors, motivated by his own personal interests to a degree. 
But Spanish, Spanish people during the 16th century, particularly Spanish writers, continue to refer to the Indies rather than America or a new world, which suggests a cultural or a geographic continuity between continents. Um, can you expand upon this idea a little bit? That's right. You know, often when we see the Spanish talking about the Indies, uh, we treat the Indies in this Spanish usage, mm. you know, after Columbus as just a synonym for America. Uh, but I think one of the things that Gorman teaches us is that names matter, words matter. Uh, behind these names, there's all sorts of thinking, all sorts of assumptions that may not be present when, when the name changes. Um, so when we say the Indies or when Spanish say the Indies, there were indeed some Spaniards who were using it more or less as a synonym for America. Uh, but I think the majority usage uh, spoke of a certain kind of continuity that uh, the Indies, um, as Nicolás Gómez teaches us in his uh, wonderful, uh, relatively recent book on Columbus, were this whole uh, expanse of lands that occupied the tropical regions of the world. And it was a very open-ended concept. Um, so while we think of the Indies as... Um, uh, you know, in, in Columbus's mind is basically the islands of Southeast Asia. Uh, really anything that was found in the ocean along the way there yeah. could be thought of as Indies. Right. Um, the question is, at what point does one of these landmasses become so large and so different from what we expect that we start to think it's a better idea to, to talk about it as something else, as a new world, as America, as a new continent. Um, but this use of the Indies suggests that Spanish held on to the idea that no matter how big this, these new places were, that they were indeed part of this larger um, uh, expanse of lands that stretched all the way into Asia and into the Indian Ocean. Yeah, even today I find it interesting that... Um possibly one of like, the largest memory of Spanish America in Spain is the archive of the Indies, not the archive of America. Yeah. That's right, yes. So um, is, is there a sense in the 16th century that um, this geographical or a geographical and ethnographical continuity between Asia and America was exaggerated in writings by Spanish people? And if so, why? Um, well, you know, it may have been exaggerated by the Spanish or it may have been that what we're seeing in the Spanish was actually quite common. Um, among other European map makers. Um, right. You know, we might be able to get to that later when we talk about uh, Magellan and what happens to world mapping after Magellan. Uh, yeah. Certainly the Spanish had an interest in that continuity because uh, they never um, uh, stopped wanting to get to the Indies. In other words, Columbus's failure uh, was not decisive. Um, and so if you're thinking of the New World as part of the Indies, part and parcel of that is that you still want to get to, let's say, to the Indies that you already knew about, <laughs> the ones where all the spices and gold were. <laughs> um, so it could be that the Spanish are exaggerating this. It could be that, um, you know, this is uh, indicative of, of the mentality of other Europeans. Um, I, I don't I don't really um, feel... Um, uh, equipped to speak about the larger European picture because my work is really uh, focused on Spanish sources. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've always found it interesting. And uh, the first thirty years after the discovery of America, they they spent those essentially three decades trying to bypass it. It was really right, a continent, yeah. a continent hidden in plain sight, wasn't it? In some ways, there's um, there's that uh, wonderful. It's a quotation from an 18th century historian, but uh, Samuel Eliot Morrison is where I picked it up. Yeah, he says that the uh, the first decades of exploration of 
uh, uh, after Columbus are all about trying to get around the new world or through the new world. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, the new world is seen as an obstacle to the real objective, which continues to be, um, you know, the same places that Columbus was looking for. Until the gold started pouring in, of course. <laughs> right, right. I, I think the real change is, is, is the conquest of Mexico. Of you course, know, it's, yeah. it's the conquest of Mexico that really makes uh, a difference, really makes uh, 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 for an objective, you know, sort of on the way to the Indies that people find worthwhile. The conquest of Peru has the same kind of impact. But whether that means that America is different from Asia, that's still a different story. We can get to that oh, later. Yeah, that's, that's a whole other story, isn't it? <laughs> So to return to Columbus briefly then, um, his entire project, which he presented to the Portuguese king and then, of course, to the Spanish Catholic monarchs in the late 15th century, uh, it was based upon the idea that the, the circumference of the earth and therefore the westward distance between Europe and Asia was much smaller than predicted by Iberian cosmographers. And he derived this idea from the writings of Paolo del Pozzo Toscanelli, an Italian cosmographer. Can you speak about the significance of this uh, cosmographical framework? Yeah, I think it's crucial for understanding how uh, Spaniards dealt with the Pacific afterwards, um, because obviously you know, there are various uh, estimates available in Columbus's time about the circumference of the Earth. Uh, and what he does is he picks the smallest circumference along with the uh, largest estimate of the distance overland from Europe to Asia. So that makes him for a very, very short distance indeed between um, Spain and um uh, and East Asia. And of course, he's getting this from Toscanelli. Uh, the implication of this is that there is no space on your globe for North America, because that, that's really the issue. Of you course, know, yeah. discovering and inventing a new world in the Southern Hemisphere is no big problem. There's an intellectual precedent for thinking of an antipodal continent. There's space in the conception of the world to, mm. to populate the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, with a southern uh, continent, a new continent in the south. Uh, but the idea of that continent stretching northwards and taking up a lot of, there's just simply, you simply have nowhere to put it. If you look at um, the Bahame globe from, uh, what is it, from 1492 or 1491, you know, right around the time that Columbus, no room for North America. And it's North America that's the problem. Uh, so when you're, when you finally do find these, uh, lengthy coastlines in the Gulf of Mexico and in Florida and Central America, the question is, what is that coastline and where is it heading? Yeah. Um, uh, so the model doesn't leave room for North America and, um, it tends to make the ocean smaller than they are. Um, uh, there's no room, uh, just as there's no room for North America, there's also no room for something as big as the Pacific, um, which occupies something like two thirds of the surface of the globe. The Pacific is absolutely enormous and the cosmographic model does not leave room for an ocean that large. Yeah. And it was this cosmographical framework that Columbus bet everything on, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes. And even though um, people didn't think he'd, he'd gotten where he'd gotten, the general framework that he used um, was not necessarily in dispute. I mean, I, I think that uh, uh, other people favored a, lar a larger figure for the circumference of the Earth. Uh, but there's still, for example, the tendency to overestimate the distance overland from Europe to Asia. In other words, Eurasia was almost universally thought to be much larger than it was. Uh, again, leaving no room for North America or for a Pacific, even if you disagree with Columbus. Of course. <laughs> and did this, uh, this cosmographical framework, did it survive after it was discovered that Columbus uh, had in fact found 
part of a new world and not Asia. Yeah, I think so. I think when we look at the cartography from the, um, you know, 10 or 15 years, let's say 15 years after uh, Columbus's first voyage, you know, there are a series of famous world maps published in 1507. Um, and all of them give us a larger Asia uh, and relatively small, well-bounded oceans. Mm. Um, and so what this means is that when uh, Spanish exploration uh, finally starts getting, uh, so to speak, to the other side of the New World, of course. Um, the expectation is what they're discovering is basically the Indian Ocean yes. or a very narrow ocean uh, between um, Asia and Europe. You know, in other words, in, in effect, an extension of the Atlantic um, and of course, the person who first cites this notion is Vasco Núñez de, ba de Balboa, the um, uh, Spanish conquistador who was the first to march across the Isthmus of Panama. And this was this march was extraordinarily important because, as we said before, Spanish exploration was all about getting through the New World or around the New World. Mm. And when Balboa marched across, the, you know, the 22-mile-wide Isthmus of Panama and found on the other side what he called the South Sea or the Mar del Sur, uh, he was demonstrating to people that the coastline of Central America was actually this really narrow expanse and that maybe if you explored a little farther north, you might be able to get around the New World or at the very least, um, you could transport goods across this narrow distance and move people and goods from the North Sea, the Atlantic, to the South Sea. And, um, you know, I don't know if Balboa understood what he discovered or uh, or how he understood he, what he discovered. He made a report to the king. Yes. Um, um, but that report is lost. So we yeah. have no idea of how he presented his own discovery. What we have is other people's interpretations of it. Um, there is this very intriguing name, Mar del Sur, South Sea. The Mar del Sur, the South Sea, yeah. yes, of course. Um, and uh, it's often said that it's South Sea because the sea Balboa discovers is south of Panama. Um, I actually think there are other um, explanations for this. You know, the Portuguese, uh, someone like João de Barros, yeah. uses Mar do Sul, South Sea, to, to talk about the Indian Ocean. In other words, that ocean that was in the Southern Hemisphere, south of uh, the Indian subcontinent. And so it could be that well, what Balboa is saying, by saying Mar del Sur, if, assuming this this kind of usage was widespread and it wasn't confined to the Portuguese, that what he's discovering is an extension of the Indian Ocean. Um, yeah. Uh, and that they really believe that, you know, once Balboa has crossed this, that they've gotten, they've made this dramatic step forward in this quest to get um, to Marco Polo's Indies, to the Indies that Columbus was looking for. Yeah. So, of course, it was an extremely significant discovery, even if we're not entirely sure how Balboa saw this discovery, if he knew the significance of it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, the narratives then of Balboa's discovery, and there are a couple of notable ones. Um, there's his discovery of the Pacific. The narratives that talk about them, they form part of a a larger narrative of the early Spanish discoveries in America. But but you take a different approach with them, don't you? Well, yeah. You know, I think that we really have to look at these narratives in terms of uh, when precisely they were written. So it's useful to make a contrast between. Um, the way Bartolomé de las Casas talks about it. And Las Casas, it's, it's, it's hard to tell when he was writing this in the history of the Indies, but uh, he's probably writing about Balboa after 
the Magellan expedition. And uh, de las Casas was a Dominican monk, is that right? That's right. He was a Dominican friar who was well known for his defense of the uh, rights of Amerindians, but he was also a very important historian yes. of the Indies. Uh, but so, so his account is much, much is long after the fact. Actually, excuse me, it's it's from the 1530s. Um, whereas uh, Peter Martyr's account is from very shortly after the news of Balboa's discovery arrives in uh, in Seville. Uh, Peter Martyr, um, Pietro Martyr de Angeria, excuse my bad Italian pronunciation, <laughs> um, is was a, was an Italian humanist who lived in Seville, who was associated with the court of Ferdinand and Isabel, and who wrote a series of letters to prominent people back in Italy. Uh, uh, keeping them informed about the new discoveries. And his letters are extremely important because he was actually talking to the returning conquistadors and had um, uh, access to documentation and personal interviews that, yes. you know, we don't know anything about. And so when he talks about Balboa's discovery, he's looking westward. What he thinks is that these little islands that are off the coast of Panama are going to be part of a series of islands that what Spain is going to be able to do is sort of island hop their way to the Indies that he knows have been reached by the Portuguese. So in other words, Peter Martyr clearly believes that this ocean that uh, Balboa has discovered um, uh, is continuous with the ocean that washes the islands of Southeast Asia. Yeah. And he thinks the distance is small. He's basically announcing, okay, you know, we're about to get there. With this discovery, we have found our way to the Indies. We found our way around or through the New World. Now, you compare that with Las Casas, writing in the 1530s, after the discovery of Peru. One of the things Balboa hears about from the natives is rumors of civilizations with gold. Right. Martyr set, sets, the, sets these civilizations west of Balboa's position. In other words, he thinks that the people are talking about the Indies that Columbus was looking for. Mm. Uh, Las Casas knows, uh, you know, because he has 20-20 hindsight, that they're <laughs> actually talking about the Incas. And so he puts those civilizations to the south, in South America. Oh, okay. So it's Las Casas who makes Balboa's discoveries, uh, who relates them to uh, the further discovery and exploration of the Americas. Peter Martyr, the earlier writer, associates Balboa's discovery with all these aspirations to continue heading west to the Indies. Right. And just very briefly... Um does Martin Fernandez de Inciso touch upon Balboa's discovery? Because I know they had some personal history to two of them, didn't they? You know, um, offhand, I'm not sure. I can, I'm, I'm not sure what he, he certainly describes. You know, he's the first person to describe in Spanish to map in words um, the coast of the Americas that as it was known. Um, you know, right around the time that Magellan was planning his expedition. Uh, but I can't remember whether he actually mentions Balboa. The two were, were very much enemies. And I'm sure Enciso didn't want to give him any credit. <laughs> no, I don't think he would have, would he? No. <laughs> so um, the 15th century cosmographical framework that we talked about then, um, this allowed for the, the conceptualization of the Pacific Rim as a connector from America to Asia and Spanish writing. Um, but what about the Portuguese? Is there any sense that the Portuguese had a more um, nuanced view of Asia, um, as well as America and the Pacific, considering the fact that they had established an earlier presence in the Pacific and the fact that their, the fulcrum of their transoceanic empire was uh, in India and Southeast Asia? 
Right. Well, you know, by this time, you know, um, let, let's say uh, the period 1510 to 1520, um, the Portuguese have established themselves in Malacca. Um, they send their first embassy to China in 1517. Um, they establish a trade with the Spicery and a position in the Spice Islands very shortly after the conquest of Malacca. And what we know is that they're producing um, uh, charts, nautical charts of the area that are the most sophisticated of the period. Um, we also get um, uh, descriptions. You know, in the 16th century, often uh, written descriptions of geography are more common and circulate more widely than actual maps and charts. Um, and um, uh, we get a very important description of the Indian Ocean Basin, let's say, uh, by Duarte Barbosa. Um, so I think that they understood the geog geography more accurately. Uh, I don't think that they had any reason to believe that the Pacific was um, uh, was terribly wide. Um, uh, in other words, uh, you know, at this point, no European had actually crossed the Pacific, uh, and no European could really measure longitude with any accuracy. And so even though the Portuguese and the Castilians, you know, they, they, they measured longitude differently, and that Portuguese measurements were closer to the truth than were Spanish measurements, um, um, you know, this, the Portuguese were not, um, we're not in the business of mapping trans-Pacific space. No one was in the business yeah. of mapping trans-Pacific space because that space, it hadn't been navigated and it wasn't uh, important to anyone in any kind of commercial sense. The only people really interested in the Pacific and getting that distance right at this point are the Spanish because they're the ones who have – um, uh, the, uh, the need to get across it. And of course, this is thanks to the Treaty of Tordesillas, which mm -hmm. had split the world. We hadn't mentioned this, you know, that it had split the yeah. world between Portugal and Spain. Um, and, uh, it gave each kingdom a direction in which to sail. So the Portuguese could do commerce, they could colonize, they could make treaties, etc., only going eastwards from this line that cut through the Atlantic, the Spanish could only go westwards. Um, so this is, of course, one of the reasons why Columbus's project stays alive, because if Spain wants to get to the Indies described by Marco Polo, the only way they can do this, according to the treatise, is by sailing west, which means that they're eventually going to have to cross the Pacific, even though they don't know that this big ocean exists. <laughs> yes, but they're about to find out. <laughs> right, indeed they are. So even after Balboa's discovery of the Pacific, though, um, it remained a relatively, a relatively unknown entity uh, to the Spanish for some time, or uh, what Oscar Spate has called a nameless naked space. Right. So the Spanish, the second great Spanish encounter with the Pacific then was Magellan's expedition, uh, which managed to achieve, of course, what Columbus was unable to do, which is to find a sought after Western passage to Asia, the Southwest Passage. And soon after the return of, of his fleet, to Spain, without Magellan, of course, who had died in the Philippines. Um, reports emerged pretty quickly afterwards of this incredibly arduous journey, as well as the, the enormity and the, the desolation of the Pacific. And most notable among these narratives were the 1523 writings of Maximilianus Transylvanus, which was followed by the 1525 narrative of T Antonio Pigafetta. Can you provide our listeners with a maybe a brief account of, first of all, who these men were and why their reports are significant? Sure, they were. You know, if um, so, these are two people who wrote about the Magellan voyage. Magellan uh, sailed um, 
uh, uh, from Spain in 1519, uh, promising uh, King Charles V, or by then Emperor Charles V, that he knew the way around the New World and that instead of looking for it in the tropical latitude, somewhere in what is now Central America, he was going to sail all the way south along the coast of Brazil because he felt certain that there was going to be a maritime passage uh, into the South Sea far in the south. Um, and so they equipped his expedition, uh, five ships. Um, uh, he finds that passage, makes it across uh, the Pacific to the Philippines. He dies in the Philippines. And only one ship makes it home. One ship with a very small number of survivors ends up going around the world. Um, and so Transylvanus and Pigafetta were, you know, two, like, as you said, two of the very prominent writers about the expedition. And if any, the one that people pay attention to these days is Pigafetta. Yes. Uh, because he was this Italian gentleman who uh, got permission, in effect, to go along for the ride. Uh, he was a man who was interested in experiencing the age of exploration firsthand um, and came across as a passenger. And um, we're very lucky that he did yes, because indeed. he kept a diary of his voyage. He survived the voyage. Yes. <laughs> and when he got back to Europe, he converted his uh, diary into a narrative. And we have other firsthand accounts of the Magellan expedition, but none that are as rich and as detailed as Bigafetas. And so his, is, his, 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 his account is really the great eyewitness narrative of the first voyage around the world, uh, and really one of the great travel narratives of all time. You know, it's really worth reading even today. Um, and so because he's an eyewitness, because his travel narrative is so important in the ways that I've described, he has completely eclipsed this other writer who went by the pen name of Maximilianus Transylvanus. He was a secretary to the Emperor Charles V, okay. who was involved in the interviews of the expedition survivors. And he sends a letter in Latin to a relative um, uh, on the other side of the Pyrenees, which then later gets published in 1523. And uh, it's basically the official account of the expedition, um, one that um, is really inflected by the political interests of Spain are of assuring their claim to the Spice Islands. Now, what happens is that, you know, when we look at these accounts in hindsight, the Pigafetta account is much more interesting. It's longer, it's more detailed, it's eyewitness. The Maximilianus, the, the Transylvanus account is uh, much briefer, it's secondhand. Right. Uh, but one of the things that we have to remember is that Transylvanus makes it to print first, okay. and he circulates more widely than Pigafetta. Pigafetta's travel narrative is published two years later, it's published in French, and it takes a while for the Pigafetta narrative to get translated uh, into other la languages, specifically to Italian, which is the language in which a lot of travel narrative, um, it's sort of the transmission language, whether yeah. you've written originally in, in French, in Spanish, in Portuguese, it's once you get translated into Italian that you get broadly read. Um, but so Transylvanus beats him to the punch. And I think priority yeah. matters. I think this early broad circulation matters. And and um, and as we'll see, Transylvanus has, has his fans among other writers. So it's his account of the Pacific, I think, has um, in the short term um, a kind of impact and importance that we're not willing to give him, you know, when we look back and, and you know, don't find the secondhand account as interesting as the firsthand account. Yeah. 
Um, do you think that Transylvanus's uh, representation of the Pacific was um, coloured or in some way uh, determined by his official position to Charles V or by the fact that he was not part of the fleet? Yeah, I uh, I think that that is exactly uh, the case. Um, it's not um, an obvious piece of propaganda. Like any good propaganda, I think it sort of camouflages its political commitments. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that we get in Pigafetta, uh, you know, as you said, we have this harrowing account of the crossing of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Uh, Magellan thought like everyone else did at his time, that the ocean between the New World and the Indies was going to be relatively narrow. Because as we were saying, the models of the globe didn't allow for a very large ocean. Um, and so he seems to have expected that the crossing, so he, he gets into the Pacific in Chile through, through the Strait of Magellan, which he discovers, mm -hmm. the crossing from there to the Moluccas, which are in modern Indonesia, he seemed to have expected it would take a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. Yeah, and yeah. he was expecting to discover all sorts of rich islands along the way. <laughs> what happens, in fact, is that it takes over three months and they only make landfall once in these islands that Magellan christens the unfortunate island <laughs> because he's not really able to uh, um, to repair and um, uh, uh, and reequip the ships. Um, so Pigafetta gives us this account of this absolutely harrowing voyage where, you know, they always have following seas, always great winds, always currents are always on their back. There's not a single storm during the entire crossing, but the food is running out. The water is running out. The men are eating the rats. Um, there, he talks about, um, uh, trying to eat the sawdust, about taking the leather off the rigging and softening it to try to eat it. Uh, people begin to suffer from scurvy, which was not understood at all. You know, so here they are dying from this mysterious disease. Uh, when you look at Transylvanus, all of those details get eliminated. Yeah. First of all, Transylvanus doesn't really give us a lot of numbers. So you don't really know how far people have sailed. Um, and what he says, he, he, what he, what he says is that they crossed the Pacific, that yes, it was very wide. Yes, it was very large. Yes, it was very empty. And it's sort of one of the triumphs of the expedition to have discovered this very large ocean. But he doesn't talk about the suffering of the men. And when he mentions the unfortunate islands, he talks about them stopping and fishing and resting, you know, so he actually makes the unfortunate island into something that it wasn't. Um, so, yeah. you know, the question becomes, how do you represent distance in literature, right? One of the ways to represent it is by um, describing something of the toll that distance takes on the human psyche and the human body. Pigafetta gives us that, very famously so. Clearly, clearly. Pennsylvania erases it. So, um, you know, part of my work has to do with the idea that, you know, as human beings, numbers don't mean that much to us. So even if Transylvanus gives us a distance here and there, um, uh, you know, we often hear that numbers beyond five or ten or, very, you know, the very small amounts that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis become meaningless quickly. What's really going to mean something, I think, to the early modern reader is that account of suffering. And that's precisely what Transylvanus erases from the account. Um, um, and so uh, what I'm saying in my work is that, you know, Pigafetta is the one who really invents the Pacific in writing. 
And what happens is that then you get all of this Spanish writing that comes out of more or less official circles that tries to contain the Pacific, that tries to deny its uh, its its sheer size, its uh, tremendous emptiness, um, and and the difficulties presented by uh, by crossing it. Transylvanus is the first person yeah. to do this to contain the implications of the encounter with the Pacific. That's interesting. How do you think his interpretation of the conquest of the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, then come? How did it come to be dominant over Pigafetta's uh, narrative? Well, you know. Um, uh, Everyone read Transylvanus, and people read Pigafetta too. But um, uh, Transylvanus, in effect, got copied by other people. Uh, Peter Martyr, I should say, also has an account of the uh, Magellan crossing that appears um, uh, in his letters. Uh, and it's kind of somewhere in between um, Transylvanus and Pigafetta, and it's handling. Oh, he would have the- used both sources. Uh, pardon me? He would have used both sources? Or he would have had the same access that Transylvanus had to the survivors okay. as well as being able to, to read Pigafetta. Uh, I'm really interested, though, in the uh, the Spanish writers like Oviedo and Gomara and what they yeah. do with uh, the Pigafetta narrative. Um, one of the things you see, for example, is uh, Oviedo, uh, when he tells the story of the Magellan Expedition, uh, he actually tells it twice in the chapters of his history. And we can get to Oviedo in a minute. Maybe um, right now we could, um, I, I could just mention a little bit about the cartography. Um, one of the things that we find, and you know, this is something that historians of cartography have been telling us for some time, is that um, uh, what we see in globes and world maps after the return of the Magellan expedition, you'd think that the discovery of the Pacific would decisively separate the New World from Asia and would really mm-hmm. teach people that, uh, you know, the Americas were a different, very large, very important place. And there are historians who think that that, that that's really the, the, the long-term impact of the Magellan voyage. In the short term, though, Cartographers had to reconcile two pieces of information. On the one hand, they had to reconcile Magellan's discovery of this ocean. But on the other hand, they had to um, reconcile that with Cortés's encounter with the Aztecs. And keep in mind that Magellan is sailing at the exact same time that Cortés is conquering the Aztec Empire. That's right. And so on the one hand, this large ocean had a tendency to separate America from Asia. On the other hand, the discovery of this sophisticated civilization in Mexico had a tendency, at least in the minds of some mapmakers and some cosmographers, to suggest that North America and Asia were continuous. In other words, the Aztec world, with its cities and with its wealth and with its sophisticated culture, looked a lot more like the world of Marco Polo than it did like the world of the Caribbean islands. Um, And so what you see in the wake of the Magellan expedition is actually an uptick in the tendency to represent North America and Asia as one continuous landmass with a large ocean to the south of what we might call the Amerasian coastline, which is right. the name I give to this hypothetical coastline that connects China with what we call North America. Um, uh, one of the issues was that um, the only publicly available data that would suggest that the Pacific was as large as it was as the Pigafetta narrative. But ironically, there's actually a printer's error in that 1525 edition 
of Pigafetta that garbles what he has to say about the breadth of the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And it's possible to interpret that. If you come to that text with the old cosmographical framework in mind, it's possible to interpret what Pigafetta is saying as, as actually a much narrower distance. So if you in, interpret Pigafetta this way, if you, if you sort of erase the Pacific, thanks to that, that error, um, then you can construct a globe where um, North America is connected with Asia and what we call the Pacific is really the South Sea. In other right. words, the sea which is south of this Amerasian, this enormous Amerasian continent in the north. Okay. How influential were political considerations in uh, narrowing the Pacific? And what were these considerations? Well, um, they were certainly important. Uh, as we said before, the Treaty of Tordesillas had divided the world between Spain and Portugal. And it just so happened um, that the Spice Islands, which were the, the really coveted destination of the Magellan expedition, uh, were very close to the dividing line between the Spanish and uh, Portuguese halves of the world. But because no one could measure longitude with any accuracy, um, you could come up, you could sort of take the available data and process it in different ways so that the Moluccas, the Spice Islands, ended up either on the Portuguese or on the uh, Castilian side. So there was certainly Spain and Portugal certainly had political interests in favoring uh, certain scientific accounts over others. And the lack of any way of measuring longitude, as well as a number of other uh, variables that were up in the air, um, did not allow for an objective way of, arbitra uh, of, of, um, of uh, arbitrating between the different scientific interpretations that were favored by the two crowns. Uh, mm -hmm. But the point I'm making is that it wasn't just um, politics that was at work. Um, in other words, uh, in order for the Castilians to advance their version of the world's geography, which put the Spice Islands basically just over the line on their side, um, their scientific account, uh, their cartography had to have a certain kind of credibility. Um, okay. And uh, that credibility came from uh, estimates of the circumference of the Earth and the, the length of, of Eurasia that tended to make the Pacific small. Uh, over the course of the 16th century, the Spanish crossed the Pacific several times, and each of those voyages produced different estimates of the breadth of the Pacific. Uh, the later voyages actually made it out to be smaller. Than the Magellan expedition had made it out, had made it out to be. So the curious thing is that uh, over the course of the 16th century, the available data seemed to favor the Spanish position, or at least as far as the Spanish were concerned. Um, so there's this very very complex relationship mm -hmm. between um, a cartography that doesn't that that is incapable of having the accuracy you need. Um, a cosmography that is making the world look a particular way for sort of um, for reasons that have nothing to do with empirical science um, right. and imperial interests, uh, you know, a crown that very much wants the science to work out in a particular way um, uh, uh, so that they can make the Spice Islands Spanish. OK, so it's very much in Spanish interests to oh, narrow the Pacific. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Portuguese enlarged the Pacific for the same reasons. Um, the chief cosmographer of the Spanish Council of the Indies, uh, Pedro Ambrosio de Onderis, 
um, at the end of the 16th century, he complained um, that even after the Spanish king, Philip II, inherited the Portuguese throne in 1580, he complained that the Spanish could not rely on Portuguese maps for navigation because after the Treaty of Zaragoza in 1529, when they supposedly settled uh, the deal of the Moluccas, um, the Portuguese continued to widen the Pacific in their charts to allow the Spice Islands to continue falling within their demarcation. Right, that's true. So uh, just as the Castilians were making maps that served their interests, and not only making them, but I should say uh, uh, making copies of them and uh, presenting them to foreign dignitaries as a way of advancing their case. You know, of course, all the the known copies of Spanish world maps that we have from this period are all these presentation copies to foreign dignitaries. Which explains Uh, why they're all so decorative and so on, right? Exactly, why they have all this beautiful iconography, why they're so pretty to look at. Um, So the Portuguese were doing the same thing, mapping the world um, according to their interests. But, you know, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that behind the presentation cartography, which had a a propagandistic purpose, there was a practical cartography. Um, Diego Ribeiro, for example, the producer of one of these... um, uh, for lack of a better word, propaganda map, these presentation copies, was also the man in charge of making the charts and instruments for the follow-up expedition to the Magellan expedition. And when you think of that, you know, lives and fortunes are at stake in that man's work. Uh, yes. uh, uh, his estimates of distance are going to determine uh, how you equip the ships, for example. Um, uh, so... Um, uh, Spanish cartography is not all uh, propaganda and fudging the numbers for political reasons, uh, yeah, yeah, because, yeah. The, like I said, there are lives and material resources at stake in these questions. Of course, of course we don't have any of the practical maps that Ribeiro made, no, but we no. can't assess whether those maps were different from the presentation copies. You know, in yeah, other words, yeah. was there one set of numbers for internal use and another set of numbers for? Uh, um, uh, public consumption, you know, we have no way of, of answering that question. But there were certainly um, a lot of, um, as uh, Benjamin Schmidt puts it, cartographic chicanery on yes. both sides of uh, of the controversies. But that's the great tragedy of cartographic history in Spain in the 16th century and Portugal, isn't it? That most of these maps have disappeared either oh. through systematic destruction or through wear and tear or whatever reason. I mean, so we are missing so much of this cartographic information that could that could tell us so much. Right. And and it's why we're constantly debating these issues, because we're having to infer the big picture from what's really a fragmentary corpus that has come down to us. Um, uh, and, you know, of course, it makes for a very, inter- a very inter- interesting intellectual problem, but sometimes a frustrating one, because there are a lot of things that I think simply we just don't know and can't know. We just don't know. Yeah, we have to speculate. Even even isn't that the... Um, the Cantino Planisphere, one of the most famous Portuguese maps of of Spanish and Portuguese discoveries in the early 16th century, that was lost for years, wasn't it? And found in the 19th century, That's being right, used yes. as, as a curtain in a butcher's shop, no? That's right, yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> the famous Mueller map that was only discovered uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you, you just hope it would be, a, it's the dream of every historian to make a discovery <laughs> like that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> of course it is, yeah. But, you know, one of the d- things you do see um, in um, Portuguese, I've spoken about Spanish accounts of the Magellan Expedition, at least some of them, we'll get to others. There are also Portuguese accounts, you know, the great 
uh, Portuguese histories of discovery all talk about the Magellan expedition. And they have a bone to pick with Magellan because Magellan was a Portuguese uh, Fidalgo who defected to Spain. So there's resentment on uh, uh, against him in Portugal. Uh, but when you look at, for example, the, the account of Magellan and someone like Barros or, or Castaneda, uh, they... Uh, uh, talk about uh, Magellan's pilot as um, uh, a madman who didn't know who what he was doing and uh, didn't really know where the ships were. Uh, in other words, there's an interest in this kind of official historiography in undercutting the credibility of any of the data that came back from the Magellan expedition. Um, so, you know, that war of, of that cartographic war doesn't take place, doesn't just take place on the maps. It takes place in published histories as well. That's right. Um, yeah. And in, um, in, in Portuguese accounts of the first Pacific crossing. Yeah, Barros had to go with quite a few of those who were part of the expedition, including Rui Falero, uh, his partner. That's right. Yes. That he knew nothing about uh, cosmography or, or navigation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we'll, we'll move on to Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo now. We mentioned him earlier. But uh, Oviedo, Gonzalo Fernández de Oviedo, who wrote one of the most important and extensive chronicles of the Spanish discoveries, the Historia General y Natural de las Indias, or the General and Natural History of the Indies, um, he also spoke about the Pacific, but he also suppressed the idea of this large Pacific to keep alive this transoceanic, this trans-Pacific empire, didn't he? Right. Why, was he so, why was his suppression so significant? Well, you know, I don't know if his suppression well, – first I'll, I'll say how he does it. I mentioned a little earlier, you know, that in this book you mentioned this in, incredibly important book, the Historia General, Oviedo tells the story of the Magellan expedition and also of the follow-up expeditions that had occurred by the time uh, he was writing uh, uh, this piece. Uh, you know, probably – so he's probably writing in the late 1530s, maybe as late as 1540. Um and um, the part of the of the historia that's dedicated to the Medellin expedition actually tells the story twice. Uh, and the first time, the first time he tells it, um, everything that Oviedo says is very consistent with Transylvanus. Uh, so there's a lot of marveling at the fact that the world has been circumnavigated. There's this admission that the Pacific was much larger than anyone had expected to be and how mm -hmm. wondrous it is that the Spanish have discovered it. But there's also... Um, an attempt to downplay the full implications of its breath. So Oviedo does the same thing Transylvanus does. He erases everything that Pigafetta has said about um, the suffering of the Pacific crossing. And Oviedo never provides any numbers that would let you actually map things out. Uh, but so then he tells it a second time. And the second time, he uh, he mentions Pigafetta by name, and he says, you know, Pigafetta is to believe because he was he was an eyewitness account. But, the, but then instead of transcribing all of Pigafetta's narrative, which Oviedo mm -hmm. does in the case of other expeditions, you know, yeah, transcribe yeah. other people's narratives, he actually edits it. He, he's just, he's, well, I shouldn't say he edits it. He mines it. He mines right. it for ethnographic data that is not present in the Transylvanus account. Okay. But one of the things that he does not get from Pigafetta is everything that he says about the Pacific. So I think it's possible to interpret Oviedo. Um, Oviedo, in effect, confirms what I was saying about Transylvanus and Pigafetta, that while Pigafetta, uh, 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 his literary portrayal of the Pacific crossing is such as to um, allow the reader to, to conclude that the Pacific is too broad to cross, 
Transylvanus uh, presents it as, well, yes, big, but perfectly crossable. As a matter of fact, this is one of the triumphs of the Magellan expedition, that they've made it across this vast ocean so easily. Oviedo repeats that. He repeats what uh, Transylvanus says, and he silences those aspects of Pigafetta that would bring Transylvanus into question. Um, so uh, it's Oviedo, I think, who really, because he was the official chronicler of the crown, that allows us to see how uh, this policy of containing the Pacific is really uh, serviceable to the interests of the crown and is really something that is kind of ongoing. It's not just something that uh, Transylvanus does uh, um, uh, in a single instance. Okay, okay, I see. And then Oviedo's work, of course, was followed by another writer, um, Francisco Lopez de Gomara, who wrote the Historia General de las Indias, or the General History of the Indies. And this seems to have taken a different approach to that of Oviedo and other previous writers. Um, can you explain why Gómez's work was different and why he took an alternative approach? Oviedo's work, uh, the parts of it that are published, uh, come out in the 1520s, uh, then again in the 1530s. There's a final edition um, uh, uh, right before the author's death. Um, uh, but then Gómez's is... Uh, Historia General, so the, the titles are very similar, comes out in 1552. So Gómez really a, a generation later, so to speak, than Oviedo. And um, Oviedo, not only is he trying to keep the Pacific navigable in order to keep alive the idea that the Spice Islands are Spanish, um, uh, but he also, I, and this is the argument I make, he also believes in this idea of Indian continuity. Uh, in other words, that the Indies, where he is, the New World, are ethnographically continuous with the Spice Islands. He, he doesn't have any idea whether they're geographically continuous, but he does believe that they're both Indies. Um, they're, you know, so in other words, the same kind of people, the same kind of civilization, the same kind of natural resources, uh, despite the observable differences. Uh, Gomez, I think, has a very different way of looking at the world. Uh, of all the authors that I look at, um, he's one of the few where I can, where I feel confident in saying that he is using Indies as a synonym for America. That he really sees the new world as a place set apart with, uh, people, plants, and animals that are fundamentally different from those of the old world. Um, so what's interesting for him is that the Pacific is actually a kind of boundary between worlds in the way it is not for Oviedo or for Transylvanus or for Peter Martyr when he's writing about Balboa. Um, but the interesting thing is it's not, it's not, um, uh, it's not wide. Uh, so if there's any writer that seems to keep the Pacific narrow for political interests, it's Gomara, right? And so it's very interesting what he does with the, the, the Magellan expedition. He's very, um, uh, he has no problem with communicating all the horrible details about the Pacific crossing, because that tells us it's a, it's a literary way of marking passage from one world to another world. It would have been very common in the fiction of the time, you know, when a knight passed from one important space to another, he would have gone through a space of trial. Right. Uh, but when he talks about numbers, he insists that the distances are very, very short and that the Malukas are without a doubt in the Spanish hemisphere. Mm. So uh, here's something very different. Uh, America, even though he never uses the word, has become actually very different from Asia, geographically separate from Asia, ethnographically distinct from Asia, but the Pacific continues to be narrow. 
Arrow. Yeah. Um, so he's he's a very interesting case because you know a lot of historians have told us that the discovery of the breadth of the Pacific is what convinces a lot of Europeans that the New World is actually a fundamentally separate and different place from Asia. Well, Gomara seems to sustain two what should be contradictory theses. America is different, but the Pacific is narrow. Um, And in his case, I think the narrowness of the Pacific really has to do, his commitment to the narrowness of the Pacific really has to do with um, sort of his uh, Castilian patriotism and his desire to keep alive Spanish claims to the Spice Islands, even though by that time, Spain had signed a treaty giving up that claim. He's you know, he's hoping that um, things will change in the future. Uh, and of course, uh, he has, to some extent, cosmography on his side, yes, because it's yes. still uh, it's still uh, believable to say that the Pacific is smaller than it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no one in the 16th century actually gets the Pacific right. Even the people <laughs> who, who, who map it as wide as possible. Uh, in other words, the, the the largest Pacifics that we get in 16th century car- cartography still fall short of the actual mark. And primarily because of the difficulty of me- measuring longitude in the 16th century, right? The difficulty of measuring longitude, and also it has to do with the fact that when you cross the Pacific uh, uh, east to west, you always have following seas, you know, mm. when you're doing it in the tropical latitudes that they did it in. And uh, when you navigate by dead reckoning, uh, which was the method that they used, uh, following seas tend to um, um, uh, throw off your estimate in a way that uh, shortens the distances. And so what you have is a small error uh, that accumulates over the three-month voyage to make for a dramatically smaller Pacific. I got that actually from a sailor, yeah. <laughs> uh, someone who had sailed around the world and who tested this in his own crossing of the Pacific By dead and was able to calculate uh, uh, the error that he got when he used dead reckoning and how that error added up um, uh, on his own Pacific crossing. Dead reckoning, of course, predates Spanish and Portuguese usage. It goes back to medieval times, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And it's... Uh, uh, you know, if you have an experienced pilot and you're sailing over a short distance, you can get some pretty accurate estimates of the distance that you've traveled. Well, it was used primarily um, in the Mediterranean, wasn't it? I mean, exactly, it, the yeah, curvature of the earth didn't, didn't need to be taken into account. So there was no real problem there. And they knew the ports already. So <laughs> Right. And you, weren't, and you weren't sailing for three months over open ocean. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, let's move on then to the, to the Philippines. Um, now, we know Magellan landed in and claimed the Philippines for Spain in 1521, but colonization only really began in earnest in the 1560s, didn't it? Um, right. Can you maybe provide a little brief overview of Spain's presence there from the 1560s? Right. So, um, so between Magellan and the successful colonization in the 1560s, there were actually two separate attempts to colonize the Philippines. Uh, Both of them failed because um, even though Magellan had figured out how to get across the Pacific in one direction, uh, no one, whether from the Magellan expedition or from the two failed colonization attempts, could find the return route. In other words, you know, in oceanic navigation in this period, you have to find the latitude at which the winds and the currents run in the direction you want to go. Um, and there was a lot of trouble finding that return route to the Pacific. And so these early colonization efforts failed 
because um, the expeditionaries couldn't find that return route, um, and therefore the colony could never be resupplied from Mexico, which was the base for all of these projects. Uh, finally, what happens in the 1560s is on this third attempt to colonize the Philippines, they are successful in finding the return route. Uh, an, an Augustinian friar by the name of Andres de Urdaneta discovers it. So finally, the Spanish have a presence in the Philippines, and they can communicate with it and supply it. And so this time, the colonization of the Philippines is successful. And um, what we get is in 1565, a man by the name of Miguel Lopez de Legaspi establishes a colony on the island of Cebu. And through a mixture of violence and diplomacy, which was always the Spanish tactic, you know, you try to make allies, you then you use um, those uh, indigenous allies to fight against the people who are resisting your presence. Um, they sort of consolidate this tenuous hold, which comes to focus on the city of Manila. And it's when the Spanish finally established themselves in the city of Manila in 1571 that this colony um, uh, starts to become uh, viable. With the sword uh, and the compass. Yeah. Pardon me? <laughs> With the sword and the compass. A la espada y el compass, exactly, right? Yes. Exactly, yes. Yeah. As Vargas Machuca says. That's right. Um, you know, the original idea, as far as we know, behind conquering the Philippines, you know, there's this expectation that the Philippines was going to be uh, a lot like the Spice Islands, you know, a lot of gold and spices. And if they didn't turn out to be like the Spice Islands, then they could serve as a base for conquering the Spice Islands themselves. Which is, but of course, what happened, move, right? I mean, uh, no, that's not, but the Philippines didn't expect to produce, they didn't produce the expected riches, did they? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Um, they were actually quite disappointing in terms of the, the golden spices that were expected to come up, uh, to come from them. Um, and so Legaspi, you know, he wrote the king, he wrote the viceroy in Mexico asking for instructions. Do you want me to move on to the Spice Islands or do you want me to move on to China? And in effect, he took matters into his own hands by moving to Manila because Manila was an already established city, a, a Filipino city, um, with a Muslim ruling class that received regular visits from Chinese traders and even had a small uh, population of resident Chinese. So by moving to Manila with its spectacular harbor, um, Legaspi was making the decision that the future of the Philippines would have to, would, would hinge on a relationship with China rather than on the exploitation of native riches or on the conquest of the Spice Islands to the south. Um, and so with that, we really get a, a big change in Spanish South Sea strategy. They finally have that position on the far side. They finally reached the Indies the way they always wanted to. But the focus isn't going to be on exploiting islands. It's going to be on um, creating some kind of relationship with China. Right. So the Philippines then, because they didn't produce the expected riches, the Spanish turned their ambitions to China. So... Were the Philippines in some sense then a stepping stone between America and China for the Spanish, kind of a a stubborn attempt to perpetuate the myth of the Pacific as the connector of their Eastern and Western interests? That, that's exactly, I think, what happened, um, that um, the Philippines were indeed. And, you know, what happens when you look at, uh, for example, Spanish writing from this period and you look at what makes it into print, between 1565 and, and 1700, there's very little stuff that makes it into print that is about the Philippines on their own, you know, by themselves. Um, the Philippines appear instead in books about China, um, and they appear precisely as a stepping stone to China. You see these Spanish books about China 
um, that insists that China is more easily reached by this Pacific route that the Spanish have forged than it is uh, by the Portuguese path, which involves going around the Cape of Good Hope, sailing through the Indian Ocean, getting to Malacca and Macau. So there's sort of a concerted effort in print to make China look like the Western terminus of Spanish expansion rather than the Eastern terminus of Portuguese expansion. Right, right. Okay. So um, your work, of course, traces how Spanish writers drew, drew upon uh, Portuguese dystopian stereotypes of the Chinese to create your, their own narratives. Um, can you outline maybe some of these descriptions of the Chinese and how they originated? Well, sure. The... Um, uh, you know, I've said that uh, when Legaspi moved to Manila, uh, he was making the decision that China was the future of the Philippines colony. Okay, okay. Uh, but the question was, what kind of future? Uh, because what you see is a period of, say, roughly 25 or 30 years where there is a controversy between um, what we might call the China doves and what we might call the China hawks. And so let's talk about the hawks. First, the hawks were a group of people primarily in the Philippines, but there were also China hawks in the New World and in Spain itself, who really thought that um, the only possible relationship with China um, was a military one. In other words, they thought, and, and um, the Spanish scholar Manuel Oye has, has, is the, has been the one who said this, that they thought that the Philippines were going to be to mainland Asia what the islands of the Caribbean had been to the mainland of the New World. In other words, a springboard for the conquest of these huge empires. Um, and, you know, the Hawks understood that China was large, that the population was enormous. But, of course, they had the precedent of Cortes's experience in Mexico and of Pizarro's experience in um, Peru, where a small number of Spaniards had managed to penetrate these two empires, make local allies, and eventually, against all odds, conquer them for Spain. And so what these right. talks believed was that history would repeat itself in okay. this part of the world. But of course, in order for that plan to have any kind of credibility, um, you had to think of China in particular ways. In other words, you had to acknowledge that it was large, that there were a lot of people, uh, but then you also had to have a fairly contemptuous attitude of the Chinese themselves. Okay. And so what you see in the writing of the China Hawks is that the Chinese are cowardly, that yes, they use gunpowder weapons, but their cannons are no good and they're not really good at firing their harquebuses. But I think the central idea is that China is governed by an absolutely tyrannical government. Okay. Um, everyone knew that the mandarins who governed China had these very harsh uh, punishments, these very hard whippings uh, that came to be known as the bastinado, as well as these very uh, harsh jails. Um, uh, there had been Portuguese uh, merchants and diplomats who had been captive in these jails and who had come up with sort of early descriptions of China and of these conditions. And so what the Hawks basically said was that a small force of Spaniards and of Filipino allies landing in China would be greeted as liberators, that the people would rise up against the mandarins and that the the Spanish would eventually have sort of large groups of Chinese allies that would aid in the fight and the government would collapse 
like a house of cards. And, you know, I'm simplifying things, but this is the way the hawks are looking at it. They're These looking are dystopian at it. representations, yeah. Exactly. And so the fact that it's a tyranny, it's very convenient because if you're saying they're tyrannical, that gives you an idea of how you're going to conquer it. And it also justifies your conquest, you know, yeah, because yeah. you're denying the Chinese government any kind of legitimacy. Interesting. <laughs> Plus yeah. change. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. Okay, so, but the dystopian image of the Chinese was not the only representation in Spanish writing, was it? No, no, not at all. So, so like I said, this dystopian stereotype, we see precedents for it in Portuguese writing, the, the writing of this Portuguese captains. And there's no way that the Spanish hawks would have seen the writing of the captains. So it could be that this dystopian image was something that circulated in the South China Sea among the pirates and the smugglers who had every reason to fear the Chinese, you know? Uh, that's my that's 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 a speculation, but it's it's my personal opinion that that's where it's coming from. In the meantime, though, what you have is other Portuguese writers and other Jesuit writers, especially, who are idealizing China. Um, and you know, the Jesuits are very responsible, I think, for this this sort of utopian thrust in um, uh, in writing about China. Not not just the Jesuits, though. I should say there are also Portuguese Dominicans involved, Spanish Augustinians. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, there's a there's an alternative vision of China, which basically belongs to the genre of European utopian literature. And these same mandarins that are tyrants in the account of the hawks end up as sort of philosopher kings in the account of the China doves. And so right. the China doves will, 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 they'll say things, okay, so yes, the punishments are cruel and the jails are bad, uh, but the whole system is so rational and so transparent and so fair that these things are only applied to people who really deserve them. Uh, and so therefore, China is actually one of the most well-governed uh, countries on earth. And what the doves will do is they'll compare it to the Romans. So this utopian discourse percolates in uh, the writing of some Portuguese and the writing of the Jesuits, and then it's taken over wholesale by Spanish doves. So there are also these Spanish doves who have a utopian vision of China. Uh, and part of that utopian vision is to admit that China is actually militarily very powerful and that there is no way that any power on earth could muster an army large enough to um, to conquer this immensely powerful kingdom. Um, so you've got these sort of two accounts of China. The ones that make it into print in Spain are the utopian accounts of the China doves. The, all of the hawkish stuff is in manuscript. And as far as I know, it, it doesn't really make it into print except for an occasional Jesuit letter. Is there um, maybe a reason for this or... Um, well, um, I think one of the things that's happening on the Jesuit side, and of course, this is getting away from Spanish sources, is that they're actually sweetening the sources. Um, uh, there's a Portuguese scholar, Roque de Oliveira, who has studied uh, all these European accounts of China and what he'll, what, what he, he's actually been able to identify a particular dystopian account that gets published in a Jesuit letter. But then when it gets used in the context of another Jesuit's writing, he, he sort of sweetens the source, you know, and, and gets rid of the dystopian element. So there seems to be a Jesuit agenda of making China look good. Why? Because the Jesuits are interested in establishing a mission in China, and they're afraid that if the Habsburg monarchy makes a military assault, that mission is 
going to have no future. So this utopian vision is coming primarily out of the missionaries, uh, not just the Jesuits, but the Dominicans and the Augustinians who um, uh, want to believe that the Chinese are these wonderful, rational people who are ready to fully embrace Christianity and who want to avoid uh, interference by this ill-advised military establishment. And they happen to be the ones that um, – uh, I suppose, have the connections to get their material into print in Europe. It's interesting how they, these utopian representations of uh, other other peoples by the Spanish in the 16th century, whether it be New World peoples or Chinese, uh, the utopian vision very much depends on their willingness to convert to Christianity. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. And Columbus I'm, is and, one of the first you know, to talk about them. In the New World, you have this idea that um, the inhabitants of the New World are so innocent that they will readily see the truth of Christianity. Uh, in the case of the Chinese, it has to do with their obvious uh, cultural sophistication yes. <laughs> that they will be that they will be reasonable enough to see the truth of Christianity. So it's very interesting how. Um, you know, no matter which end of the spectrum you are in terms of your sophistication, whether it's innocent or, or highly sophisticated, you can still, you know, be imagined as someone who will spontaneously see the truth of the faith. A confirmation bias at work, of course. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. So uh, in 1580 then, um, the Spanish King Philip II, uh, through a series of circumstances that were particularly fortunate for him, um, Philip managed to inherit the Portuguese throne Uh and we, we won't talk about that in great detail, but because it's, right. it's a huge separate subject. But by uniting the Portuguese and Spanish thrones, he inherited um, an extraordinary amount of territory. And uh, the Portuguese and Spanish monarchies were essentially under one ruler for 60 years. Right. Um, how did this affect Spanish policy uh, and aspirations in the Pacific and Asia? Well, of course, the Portuguese only accepted Philip's uh, ascension to the throne when he agreed to respect the constitutional independence of Portugal in its domain. So, you know, as you know, um, uh, Philip was required to uh, preserve Portuguese laws the way, the, the way they always had been, preserve the Portuguese cortes, and Portuguese possessions overseas had to remain Portuguese. So there could be no sort of transfer of colonies over to the Castilian side, no merging of the overseas empires. So this created kind of a complex state of affairs because Officially, um, uh, the Portuguese and the Castilian empires were separate empires and the same legal barriers existed. Uh, so in other words, uh, uh, Macau and Manila, which, you know, on a global scale are very close to each other. Manila in the Spanish Portuguese, uh, Macau, uh, the port, uh, excuse me, uh, Manila in the Spanish Philippines, Macau, the Portuguese uh, entrepot in China. They're actually relatively close to each other, uh, but trade between the two was strictly prohibited course, because you yeah. could not trade. But of course, it happened all the time. Yeah. Uh, and there are all sorts of contexts. So you get this period where there's this very complex situation where there are official prohibitions, there are continued rivalries between Portuguese and Castilians, uh, but none of the controversies can escalate beyond a particular level because ultimately the, it's the same king at the top of both hierarchies yeah. uh, deciding the issues. What you do see, though, um, and this I have uh, from the work of um, uh, of a historian who's who's worked on uh, Sp actual Spanish policy in Ibero-Asia, is by the time of Philip III, you really see the Spanish deciding matters with a definitive Castilian bias. 
Um, so by 1601, when Antonio de Herrera publishes his official history of the Spanish conquest of the Americas, it actually comes accompanied by maps. And it's the first official history to have all these maps. Yeah. When he maps the, um, uh, the Spanish Empire, um, uh, and in other words, for him, the Spanish Empire is you know, everything between the lines of demarcation, the whole hemisphere accorded to Spain by the Treaty of Tordesillas. It includes what he calls the Indies of the South, South America, the Indies of the North, North America, and then the Indies of the West, China, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, and the Spice Islands. So here is the Spanish crown publishing an official map that is saying that all of this territory that Portugal had always claimed as Portuguese is definitively Castilian, um, with no apologies to its Portuguese subjects. And so I think that's a clear example of how the crown ends up favoring Castilian interests um, uh, when they collide with Portuguese interests yeah, in East yeah. Southeast Asia. Yeah. So in the same period, um, 1590 to be precise, uh, Jose de Acosta, the Jesuit writer, um, he published his, his seminal work, the Historia Natural y Moral de las Indias, or the Natural and Moral History of the Indies, which is a monumentally important book, of course. And in this work, he proposed the idea of an ancient natural land bridge that existed between the westernmost part of North America, which is to say Alaska nowadays, yeah. and Asia, and which disallowed the passage of people between the two continents uh, thousands of years ago. Now, as it turns out, of course, uh, this is today considered to be the most plausible explanation of how the American continent came to be populated by humans and animals who passed over the Bering Strait many thousands of years ago. And considering the influence of Acosta's work in Spain and, and in Europe uh, in general, because of its incredibly popular. Um, did this theory have any impact on Spanish attempts to connect the continents culturally or otherwise in their writings or, or representations? Um, well, you know, I don't know about impact on attempts to connect the continents, or uh, but I can say something about how uh, this is evidence of continued attempts to connect the continents. Um, so, in other words, uh, you know, when I read José da Costa, um, I got the impression that by suggesting there was a land bridge between Asia and America, uh, that he was sort of reviving an old idea that had been credited. Um, and I think what happens is when you look at how uh, Spain has this more or less continuous interest in trans-Pacific space and realizing that there's this whole tendency to keep America and Asia, if not connected, at least very close to each other, as we see in Gomara, uh, you see that Acosta's ideas, are, they aren't coming out of nowhere. Yeah, you know? yeah okay. Um, that um, this whole notion that North America and Asia were actually two parts of one large landmass, that's been alive throughout the 16th century. Um, even in some of the writing about China, um, there's some sense that, that one of the writers, one of the most influential writers, might think of geography that way. It's, it's too complicated to get into. Um, uh, there's also the map of the world that accompanies the polyglot Bible um, um, uh, produced by Benito Arias de Montano, uh, which uh, links America and Asia. Uh, so uh, it's not so much that I think José da Costa 
is um, influencing continued attempts as so much as he's evidence that that idea has never been given up on entirely. Yeah. You yeah. know, the idea that, and that the idea that America is um, sort of an insular continent separate from the old world has not been universally accepted. Okay, right. So how had Spanish writing on Asia and the Pacific then um, evolved by the end of the 16th century? Was was the, 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 the Spanish lake, was it still the great connecting body between America and Asia or were they, too, were they considered to be two entirely independent separate entities in the Spanish imperial imagination by the end of the 16th century? You know, I think that even when you look at someone like Acosta, um, he does seem to have a sense that America is different from Asia, even though it is geographically connected. Uh, that the Indies, when he says the Indies, I think he basically means America, although the divorce between America and Asia is not as stark in Acosta as it is in Gomara, you know, for the reasons that you, you just described. He's very concerned with, you know, where did the Amerindians come from? How do we make them a part of the human family? Uh, but I think one of the things that's happening in my work is I've had to think a lot about what it means for things to be close to each other, what it means for them to be connected, what it means for two places to be part of a larger place or part of the same thing. And what you realize is that over the course of the 16th century, there are various ways to uh, map proximity and connectedness, uh, whether it's its geographical continuity or as tremendous proximity. Um, what we see is that America and Asia what we call America and Asia, what some Spaniards called the Indies, what some of them called, you know, the Indies in Asia, um, that they're always kept in relation to each other. And I think that this starts to take a more or less stable form um, with the founding of Manila, because um, what happens is that, um, you know, obviously the doves win. There's never a Spanish invasion of China. And the relationship with China becomes primarily a commercial one mediated by Manila. You get this trans-Pacific trade, the first ever, you know, steady commerce across the Pacific in which American silver is traded for Asian luxury goods, primarily Chinese silk in Manila. And a lot of basically Mexican merchants are getting very, very rich okay. off this commerce. Um, and so um, uh, and this and now we're getting to territory of, of other scholars who are really working on the Manila trade and the galleon trade and, and, and its impact um, on the Americas, especially, but also on China. Um, you know, New Spain was a was a place where, you know, you would have had you know, the first Asian Americans were present in New Spain from a relatively early date after the beginning of the galleon trade. Uh, Chinese silks, Chinese porcelains, uh, Japanese screens, all of these would have been um, uh, common in churches and in the houses of elites. Um, so um, even though um, the question of the geographical connectedness of the two continents or the ethnographic continuity uh, between the two continents uh, falls out of fashion, I think, by the end of the 16th century, um, you still have this very real um, social, economic, and even political connection. I'm thinking of, you know, the fact that the Philippines are governed from Spain between America and Asia, which is, I think, one of the things that we begin to recover. Uh, my work, in effect, I think a lot of the work on the Spanish Pacific is focused on the period after the galleon trade is, is established. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to work on, in effect, the prehistory of that period and how the 
Pacific was conceptualized from the beginning of the Spanish encounter with the ocean to the point where that relationship became more or less stable. Okay, so um, to move on to a different area now, um, what can you tell us about the Spanish attempts to find the fabled Terra Australis? Um, first of all, what was this this mythical land, this Terra Australis, and how did it come to exist in in in, in the imagination? <laughs> well, you know, if you if you look at a lot of early modern maps. Um, you'll see that they um, fill in the southern hemisphere with this enormous continent that looks like Antarctica on steroids. Okay. You know, it absolutely fills in most of the southern hemisphere. Um, and um, this is basically a hypothetical continent um, that uh, whose existence was supported by the cosmographical model that we've been talking about. You know, something that we haven't mentioned is that there was a tendency to believe that land had to predominate over water on the surface of the earth for reasons that had to do with cosmography, that had to do with theology, all sorts of complicated reasons. And so beginning more or less in the 1520s, you begin to see this huge Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern land that occupies the huge uh, expanses of the southern hemisphere. If you, and if you take a globe and you turn it so that you're looking at the South Pole, you realize that most of the southern hemisphere is water. This is the idea that was that the cosmographic model made unacceptable. Um, so there were a variety of Spanish expeditions. Most of what we've been talking about is Spain's relationship with the northern Pacific and with the trans-Pacific space that connects the New World with East and Southeast Asia. But there was also interest in the South Pacific, a series of expeditions that left from Peru, uh, three of them altogether, in search of this fabled southern land. Um, and so you get one in, in the 1560s that ends up discovering the Solomon Islands and fails. You get another one later uh, at the very end of the 16th century that also fails, a third one that fails. Each one discovers different Pacific islands, mm. uh, engages in failed colonial projects. But of course, no one finds the Terra Australis because it doesn't exist. Um, but what's really interesting is this fascination with what might be found there. Okay. And you realize um, uh, some of the best writing in Spanish about the Terra Australis is from the Portuguese pilot Pedro de Queiroz, who is sort of the second in command on the first expedition and uh, the commander on the uh, two subsequent expeditions. Um, and um, Queiroz writes a lot. Um, about the Terra Australis in attempt to drum up support for his projects. Okay. And you see that it's kind of like a consolation prize. Uh, by this point, um, you know, people are cognizant of the fact that the encounter with the Americas has been enormously destructive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they are cognizant of the fact that Spain will never rule in China. That, you know, any plan to conquer China is completely out of the question. Um, and so a lot of the uh, fantasies about China that we were going to find there a sophisticated people, white like ourselves. Spanish writers never think of the Chinese as a yellow race. They're always white. Um, so in other words, they're racially on, on a par with Europeans. All of those expectations get transferred to the Terra Australis. Um, so whatever disappointments we have from the conquest of the new world, whatever disappointments we have from the uh, uh, failure of the China enterprise get projected onto the Terra Australis, at least in some of Pedro Queiroz's writing. Um, and it's a really um, it's a really rather sad episode because <laughs> you get these stories of these incredibly long journeys 
through open ocean. Um, it's some of the only writing where you can um, um, where you hear mention of how maddeningly boring it must have been to just sail into open ocean, open ocean, and of course, you know, failure in the end. That spectacular new conquest, yeah, never um, never emerged. Yeah. But these are the last Spanish voyages into the Pacific of any significance until the 18th century. So that's why the end. That's why it's the end point of my book, because as soon as you you stop having new voyages, your image of what the ocean is more or less stabilizes, um, and the history becomes about about other things, but not about a, a a changing, ongoing invention. So the Spanish imperial imagination, in a sense, by the 17th century, becomes complete with the failure to find the Terra Australis. Yeah, complete for the time being. The I think there's changes yeah, that happen in the 18th century, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my book was originally going to extend all the way into the 18th and the 19th centuries. I was oh, going to end it with, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the Spanish-American War, but I realized that yeah, that's really the topic of several books. Not that's, a, that's a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, um, of course, in your book, you're arguing that the Spanish attempts to expand further westward um, have been downplayed in historiography, um, which you say is due to Americanist bias, which established America as a continent separate from Asia. And this westward expansion in the eyes of the Spanish um, connected Asia with America through, this, through, of course, the Spanish Lake, the Pacific. Um, but why do you think that this has been downplayed in historiography? Yeah, I'm going to turn your question around, actually, and say, why is it that it's uh, more present to scholarship of the last 20 years than it has been in, before in the past. Okay, yeah. uh, you know, Bernard Balin makes a very good observation about Atlantic studies. Um, he ties the uh, emergence of Atlantic studies to the emergence of the Atlantic Alliance. Um, and he reminds us that the uh, topics that really interest us in history are often tied to what is going on in our own day and age. Yeah, of course. Um, and so it's no surprise that in, during the 20th century, the so-called American century, uh, where you know one of the most important uh, features of global geopolitics was the American alliance with Western Europe, that the invention of America and the creation of the Atlantic world should be a huge topic uh, in historiography. Um, and, you know, whenever... Any topic becomes large, it means that other uh, projects get obscured. Um, and so we see writing during the 20th century about the Spanish Pacific. The most important book about the Manila Galleon continues to be William Scherz's book, which is from early in the 20th century. You also get Pierre uh, Chanou's book Chanou's on the Philippine course, yeah. and the, uh, the Philippines and the Pacific. But there's no real uptake in the study of the Pacific until uh, more or less the late 80s and the 90s. And, you know, what's happening then? We're seeing the uh, um, the resurgence of East Asia, East Asian economies, first Japan and then obviously China. Um, you know, right now, the United States is negotiating a trade agreement with um, uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Pact yes, yes. with uh, countries on the other side of the Pacific uh, that has everything to do with anxieties about the rise of China and about what is fundamentally a trans-Pacific relationship, you know, America and China. So what's happening right now is I think that the resurgence of China has created an interest in the Pacific, and yeah. not just in the Pacific today, but in the Pacific historically. So um, 
this aspect of the Spanish colonial experience, which had always been obscured uh, because it seemed secondary, it seemed peripheral, it seemed like a footnote to the experience in the New World. Now it looks like the prehistory of the 21st century. Um, and so it's come into view because of, uh, of because of these changes in, in global geopolitics today. Right. OK. So finally, then, um, how do you see the development of future studies on, on early modern Spanish experiences in the Pacific? Do you think um, it will continue to have its own narrative separate from Spanish America? Or do you think it's more beneficial to foster a closer relationship between both spheres? Oh, I think they should be intimately tied. Um, uh, you know, of course, there is 